Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every week we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. The world economy is poised at the edge of a major downturn with the coronavirus bringing economic activity to a virtual standstill. China, however, is at the forefront of post-COVID recovery. Shops and restaurants are slowly opening up and manufacturing plants have started coming back to production. Yet, the task of Chinese economic reset is hardly even begun. While business is still slow, millions of migrants have been left jobless with little solace from a threadbare social security net. Slowing exports and household consumption have also led to a fall in private investment in the country. So far, Beijing's attempts to stimulate the economy have at best been short-term moves. On the other hand, Beijing is locked in an almost two-year-long trade war with the United States, a conflict that has only been made worse by the geopolitical fallout in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Over the decades, China has risen to become the second largest economy in the world, and its economic well-being and policy choices will have a significant bearing on the rise and fall of global markets. In this episode of Interpreting India, I'm joined by Professor Michael Pettis. We will be discussing the various facets of the Chinese economy, as well as Beijing's attempts to set itself on the path to economic recovery. I will also talk to him about the implications of difficult bilateral relations with Washington, as far as China's economic future is concerned. Michael is a non-resident senior fellow at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy, an expert on China's economy, he's professor of finance at Peking University's Guanghua School of Management, where he specializes in Chinese financial markets. Previously, Michael has also taught at the Tsinghua University's School of Economics and Management and Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. He's a member of the Institute of Latin American Studies' Advisory Board at Columbia University, as well as the Dean's Advisory Board at the School of Public and International Affairs. Michael's long career in finance includes working on Wall Street with JP Morgan, Bear Stearns, Credit Suisse, First Boston. He has also advised the governments of Mexico, Macedonia, and South Korea on various banking-related issues. Michael formerly served as a member of the board of directors of ABCCA Fund Management Company, a Sino-French joint venture based out of Shanghai. He is the author of many books, including the Great Rebalancing, Trade, Conflict, and the Perilous Road Ahead for the World Economy, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2030. Michael, welcome to Interpreting India. Delighted to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Michael, could you begin by giving us a sense of the state of play with the Chinese economy right now? Uh, you know, we've been reading reports that there are sort of productive activity which is coming back on stream. Offices have started functioning. But at the same time, we do know that China is also experiencing a severe economic slowdown. Uh, in the recent work report presented by Premier Li Keqiang, uh, the customary GDP growth target, which is usually announced, has been quietly dropped. Uh, there is obviously a lot of speculation about what this means uh, in terms of how the Chinese leadership is looking at the economic challenge. 
So could you just get this started by giving us your sense of where do you think things stand really? I think it's very important that they drop the GDP growth target. Uh, at least I think it would be very important if that's truly what they did. I suspect that what actually happened is that they didn't drop the GDP growth target. They just thought it was too early to agree on what it would what it ought to be. And so probably in the next month or so there we will have an implicit GDP growth target that local governments will be tasked with meeting. And the reason I say that is the you know a lot of people uh, believe that the GDP growth target is China's estimate or China's projection of what GDP growth is going to be. And of course it isn't. The GDP growth target is literally a target. Um, GDP means something very different in China than it does in India or the US or anywhere else. Uh, it's an input. It's not a it's not a system's output. And in order to achieve the GDP growth target, um, we need uh, we need to allow debt to grow significantly, and that's pretty well understood here. So the amount of debt that uh, that it requires to hit the GDP growth target is really a function of the difference between the GDP growth target and the real underlying growth in the economy. And the problem, I, I suspect, uh, we don't know, but this is what the gossip and rumors suggest. The problem is that we don't know what the real underlying growth of the economy is going to be. It will probably be negative, but we don't know how negative. Right. And what kind of fiscal, monetary, other kinds of regulatory leeway does the government really have in terms of making sure that this economic slowdown isn't as deep and as sharp as some tend to fear today? There are, um, there are two types of growth conceptually um, uh, within China. And, and we often hear uh, Beijing use this euphemism, high quality growth. What that means basically is the sustainable growth that represents a real increase in the, um, in, in the wealth or in the living standards, however you want to uh, define it. And that growth is mostly driven by consumption, uh, by exports, and by business investments. Now, um, we don't know what consumption is going to be this year, but we do know that consumption is mostly a function of the change in household income and the change in the savings rate or in household debt. And uh, it's pretty safe to say that household income is going to be down this year. How much? It's hard to say because uh, it's very hard to work with the, uh, with the data. Uh, officially, uh, roughly 6% of the Chinese are unemployed, but they're able to uh, show such a low number largely because most categories of unemployed workers are not included in the official data. The official data really measures the unemployed workers in a particular city who have what's called the hukou, the residence permit for that city. Most Chinese, their hukou belongs to wherever they were born. So if you were born in the countryside and you moved to Beijing, you don't have a Beijing hukou. And so if you lose your job, you're technically not unemployed. Um, so we're all trying to figure out what the real unemployment rate is, and the estimates range from 10 to 20 percent, probably closer to 20 than to 10. Uh, but whatever the number is, that suggests that household income is way down. Uh, in addition, and this is a problem not just in China, but I suspect in most other countries, uh, households have been so shocked by COVID-19 
that one of their responses will be to raise their savings rate. And we're already seeing that in the data. Uh, Chinese households are paying down some of the huge increase in debt we saw in the last five years. So that combination of lower household income and higher household savings means consumption will be way down. Um, as for exports, you know, it's hard to say, but I think we all agree that exports aren't going to do well this year for any country. And then private sector uh, business investment, which is the other component of, of high quality growth. Well, the private sector invests mostly to serve consumption or exports. And because everyone believes both will be down this year, it's hard to imagine that, uh, that businesses are going to increase investment. They'll probably reduce it. So all the components of good growth are going to be down this year. And what that means is that if China wants to prevent unemployment from rising, and if they want to maintain some level of, of economic activity, mostly to prevent unemployment from rising, they're going to have to rely on the bad sources of growth, which are real estate development. And that's bad because it's mostly building new apartments for speculative purposes. They're, they're empty. A quarter of all apartments in China are empty. Uh, or uh, public sector infrastructure spending. And China has long ago maximized the amount of infrastructure that it can uh, productively absorb. So basically, we're left now with building uh, trains that we don't need, bridges that we don't need, uh, et cetera. Well, that's great. And I think we'll, we'll get back to each of these things that you uh, identified. But perhaps I could start by you know, asking you to sort of expand a little bit more on what the effect of further reduction in consumption and an increase in household savings is going to mean. Uh, you know, some years ago, you wrote this very uh, influential article uh, in your blog, uh, contrasting the sort of East Asian, particularly Chinese model of, you know, as high savings led growth uh, with the sort of other model, which you said is one of high wages. And you already pointed out that China had in some ways reached the logical limits of a high savings led strategy. Now, if this crisis is effectively going to push China further down the route by way of, you know, getting households to save more. I mean, what kinds of problems do you think it's going to store up as far as the economy is concerned and the growth model itself? Unfortunately, pretty big problems because the high savings uh, growth model works in a country in which uh, desired investment is much greater than actual investment. So, so typically, most developing countries have more investment needs than they have actual investment, in which case anything that pushes up the savings rate, as long as those savings are retained within the country, is likely to push up the investment rate. And the problem in China was that this was a great model in the 1980s and 1990s, because China, after 50 years of uh, anti-Japanese war, civil war, and, and Maoism, was hugely underinvested in everything. And so this high savings growth model worked very well. The problem is once you reach the point where your investment is equal more or less to your desired investment, in other words, once you've caught up to your infrastructure investment needs, then the question is what pushes growth forward? Uh, in that case, in order for investment to be productive, you need uh, consumption and exports to grow. And China is too big to rely on exports. So basically, you need consumption to grow. And the big problem in China, the reason why consumption is the lowest ever recorded in history and savings is the highest, which is the same statement, 
is not because uh, uh, the Chinese people love to save. It's because the Chinese share of GDP in China is perhaps the lowest ever recorded in history. So um, if, if, if you produce $100 worth of goods and I pay you $80 or $90, you can consume a significant share of what you produce. If I only pay you $50, which is what happens in China, then you can consume a very low share of what you produce. And that's really been the big problem in China, basically since the late 90s, early 2000s. And Beijing recognized this. They recognized this uh, at least by, by 2007. And they recognized that if you want to shift the locus of growth away from investment, which is not productive, towards consumption, you have to increase the household share of GDP, or you have to increase the willingness of households to take on debt. And in the last five or six years, we saw the latter, a huge increase in household debt. Chinese households actually have more debt now as a share of their income than American households do, which is pretty surprising for a developing country. Um, but that's the problem. We've sort of maxed out the debt capacity to generate consumption growth. And now the Chinese are paying down their household debt. Um, so the only way to get consumption to grow quickly would be through very large wealth transfers from local governments and local elites to ordinary Chinese households. Again, we've known this for at least a decade. It's just politically extremely difficult to do so. And as they were trying to do so, we got hit by COVID-19, which seems that the main impact of COVID-19 is not, it's not it's going to change the world, as many people think. I think the main impact is it's accelerating many of the problems that were already uh, uh, problems that the world was facing, problems of income inequality, problems of rising debt, problems of uh, trade tensions. All of those are being exacerbated within China, too. And so we're now going to see at the end of this year, rather than rather than see consumption rise as a share of total demand, it's going to decline as a share of total demand, which means you have to replace it with that much more non-productive investment. So debt in China, which has been growing way too rapidly for over a decade, is going to grow this year at two to three times the pace of previous right. years. And given that most of Chinese debt is going to be denominated in Chinese currency, I mean, how much of a challenge is that? I mean, there are obviously some comparisons maybe to be made with a country like Japan. I know they are not in the same economic uh, level, so to speak. But uh, I mean, how much, what category of a challenge does burgeoning debt really pose to China? Well, most economists, if you ask them um, how much debt is too much debt, they really can't answer that. And if you ask them what is the problem of having too much debt, their answer will be, well, if you have too much debt, you might have a crisis, which is a very circular answer. And by the way, it's, it's incorrect because um, some countries have had crises, um, but Many countries that have been perceived as having too much debt have not had crises. And what they've had instead is very long periods of stagnation, of very, very low growth as they work through the debt. There is tons of historical evidence that suggests that countries that, are, that have too much debt, however we define that, and we can have big arguments about how to define it, but certainly China has too much debt by any definition. They have always 
subsequently seen a sharp reduction in growth. And that can occur in two different ways. Uh, one way is you can call it the American way, which is what happened in the U.S. in the early 1930s. You had a debt crisis which forced a dramatic rebalancing of the economy. Um, or you can have it the Japanese way. Japan never had a debt crisis. But what they did was they rebalanced the economy over a 20 or 30 year period, which in the end was much more painful economically in the long term, but in the short term was much less painful. So which is China likely to have? Well, I've argued for years that China is very unlikely to have a debt crisis because a debt crisis is really a balance sheet problem. It's an asset liability mismanagement problem. And China on paper looks like it has a terrible balance sheet problem. But in fact, as long as the banking system is closed and controlled by the regulators, the regulators can force a restructuring of the liabilities anytime they want. So you are very unlikely, in my opinion, to have a banking crisis in China. We're more likely to follow the Japanese model of a long, painful adjustment. Right. The other point that you were making about, you know, falling consumption, uh, you know, th there is some literature which suggests that part of the reason why Chinese household savings have been so high, despite periods of sustained growth, is the absence of enough uh, provision, public provision of social service goods, so to speak. Uh, and that that in some ways incentivizes households to save more. Do you think this crisis could mark a turning point in that direction? which is to say that on the one hand, we have a problem of falling demand and consumption. But on the other hand, as you say, it's only the state and state-led revival which is going to kickstart it. So do you think some of that revival, instead of going into um, more empty zombie buildings and cities or bridges to nowhere, would actually take the form of more social spending in China? Yes, I think there is um, widespread recognition, and certainly the World Bank has been pushing this for a long time, that China should strengthen the social safety net. But there are, um, I would say, uh, uh, two problems. Because of course, if you strengthen the social safety net, basically households are wealthier because they don't have to pay for medical costs or they don't have to save for unemployment, et cetera. Um, but, the, but there are two problems with this. One is the problem of how it's funded. And um, and and there we we run into the second problem because basically, if I uh, if if I add a hundred dollars to your social safety net, but I fund it by taking a hundred dollars from you, then a stronger social safety net doesn't really do anything because although. Um, you now have a, a, a commitment on my part to pay for your medical treatment or your education or your unemployment. You also have less income. And for many years, effectively, that's what happened because they strengthened the social safety net by borrowing from the banks. And the banks borrowed from households at extremely negative real interest rates. So basically, when you once you jump through all the hoops, you saw that households were paying for the for the uh, the strengthening of the social safety net in the form of a hidden tax on their savings. And so, for many years, the social safety net was getting better, but the consumption share of GDP wasn't going up. And I think it's quite obvious if you ask households to pay for a stronger social safety net, then you're not really increasing their income. 
You're just taking it out of one pocket and putting it in another. Now, that process has stopped. Interest rates are real again. So now we fall into the other problem, and that is which government, the central government or the local governments, should be responsible for paying for the social safety net. And there, we have to put that in the context of this very difficult fight between Beijing and local governments and local elites over this recentralization of power and the, of the economic policymaking process that we've seen since 2012. Basically, Beijing wants to force the cost of the adjustment onto local governments. But local governments have enormous amounts of debt. And the right way for local governments to fund the uh, improvement in the social safety net would be for them to liquidate assets, to sell off shares in their SOEs or in, in their state-owned enterprises, or to sell off real estate. But that's the problem. They don't want to do that. Control over these assets is a very important part of, of their domestic power and their ability to create um, a, a, a rent, rent-seeking behavior, to put it, to put it nicely. Um, so they've been funding this by borrowing. But that doesn't really solve the problem for China. It just changes the locus of debt creation. So instead of increasing debt to invest in non-productive uh, infrastructure, they're increasing debt to strengthen the, uh, the social safety net. So it doesn't solve the underlying problem for China. We all know what must be done. It's just politically very difficult for them to do so. The other problem is a credibility problem. So, for example, Shandong province two years ago announced that they would transfer the shares of their state-owned enterprises to the Shandong pension fund. In that case, they resolved the political problem because they continue to control these SOEs. Um, but there you run into a very different set of problems. If I give you $100, you will feel $100 richer. Maybe you'll go out and spend it. If I put $100 in your pension fund, how much richer do you feel? How much will you spend? Well, it depends on the credibility of the pension fund. And I would argue that the credibility is extremely low. So it's not really going to change your behavior. In that case, it doesn't solve any problem. We need real wealth transfers, however they're done, between local governments and, uh, and local households. Right. And what is the situation with corporate debt uh, before the current crisis struck, but now more as a consequence of this prolonged shutdown? Uh, clearly, you know, uh, businesses must be under a lot of stress. Uh, and what is the government doing in order to keep them on life support, so to speak, till such time economic activity can come back to something which looks like normality? It, it shows you how difficult it is to address the COVID-19 problem because what the government has been trying to do is remove what I would call supply-side constraints. So banks have real trouble lending to the private sector because most lending in China is lending against assets, primarily real estate. So let's say you are the, the, the main owner and the CEO of a $30 million company, and you, you need to borrow money, the banks will only lend you money against the collateral value of your house. So let's say you have a nice house, a $5 million house. 
they will lend you up to three and a half million dollars, 70%. But if you have a $30 million company, you may need a lot more than that. This has been a real frustrating problem. But my the point that I would make is that even if they were able to resolve it, it doesn't really solve the problem because Chinese businesses don't have a supply side problem. They have a demand side problem. And that is, if you are a private business, most of your production goes to serve exports or consumption. And with export growth having been weak before COVID-19 and negative since then, and the same thing with consumption, then the chances are you're probably not that eager to borrow money to expand production. Uh, and that's what we're seeing. That doesn't mean uh, um, uh, SMEs, small and medium enterprises, aren't borrowing money. They are. But what it looks like they're doing with the money is either using it to pay down more expensive uh, shadow banking debt, or they're using it to speculate. So recently there was a big problem because many of the smaller companies that were given COVID-19 loans didn't use the money to keep their factories open. They used the money to buy apartments in Shenzhen, uh, a city with the fastest increase in apartment prices. And of course, that doesn't help the economy. That just turns real lending into speculative purchases, which isn't the purpose of the lending. Uh, But it's very hard to resolve that. There really isn't demand. So you can give private sector companies all the credit you know you can they could possibly want, but unless they use that credit to expand production, it's not going to have a, a demand impact. That's right. Uh, but has the Chinese government intervened in the financial markets, say, to get especially the shadow banking sector to exercise, say, more forbearance about repayment of loans? We've seen some of those kinds of measures being taken by the central bank here in India. I was wondering what's happening in China. In China, too, they're making it uh, more difficult to uh, to uh, put a company into default they're requiring companies, certain, certain larger companies to continue playing, paying their workers, even if, uh, even if production is much, much lower, et cetera. Um, again, it's, it's the right step to take. Um, I think anything that can transfer income to households will reduce the amount of damage caused by, by the collapse in demand through COVID-19. Uh, the question here in China is really, are you getting um, relief to the right people, to the right groups? And as I said, you really have to boost demand. Keeping companies open doesn't really solve the problem. It's better than nothing. But the problem is that those companies are not able to sell because there's no demand. And uh, we can postpone the problem by creating liquidity for, uh, for smaller companies but we're not really solving the fundamental problem. What about the external sector? You mentioned that even before the current crisis, there was uh, you know, a, a problem in a sense of a slowdown of external demand. Uh, the US-China you know, trade sort of friction has been uh, on for a couple of years now. Uh, but, but how do you think uh, you know, this is going to play out after the current crisis uh, is perhaps behind us to a certain extent? I mean, there's already been a lot of talk of saying that, you know, too much of the global value chains are dependent on China. There is a need to sort of depend less, to diversify, and so on. I mean, is there thinking within China about what all of this could mean? 
Very much so. I think I think they're extremely worried. Um, what I would argue is that uh, COVID-19 didn't really change anything so much as it accelerated existing trends. The problem of, of, a, of a rise in, in, a, in global trade conflict, I think, for example, is something that predates uh, the Trump administration. We started to see the trade share of GDP after many years of rising, beginning in 2012, it started to decline. And if you look at if you just look at the graph, you can't even tell when Trump became president because there's no sharpening of that process. Global trade has been declining, I think, because of real problems in the distribution of trade and in the creation of imbalances. And what COVID-19 has done, I think, is accelerate those imbalances. And so I expect that, if anything, trade conflict is going to become worse. Uh, Think about it from a savings point of view. If households increase their savings, which they will do in not just in China, but in the US, in Europe, probably in India, in most countries, I think one response to the shock of COVID-19 is to say, you, I will never get caught like this again. I will increase my savings rate in case of a future uh, problem. But if you increase your savings rate, let's say Americans increase their savings rate, something else has to happen. Either the American current account deficit has to contract or American investment has to go up and private sector investment won't go up, it'll go down. So that has to be public sector investment um, or unemployment has to go up. From China's point of view, they have the same problems except that for them it's either the current account surplus must go up or uh, uh, investment, public sector investment must go up or unemployment must go up. So basically what you're showing is that in the US, they need the current account deficit to contract or else it puts upward pressure on unemployment. And in China, they need the current account surplus to expand or else it puts upward pressure on employment. And you don't get both, you get one or the other. So basically the impact of COVID-19 is to worsen the impact of the imbalances between surplus and deficit countries, where surplus countries urgently need the surplus to go up and deficit countries urgently need the deficit to go down. And of course, that's impossible. So the way we're going to resolve that is through trade conflict. Right. And what implications does this have also for China's sort of financial integration with the rest of the global economy? Because one of the things which this crisis has reaffirmed, if we needed any other reminder, uh, is the centrality of the U.S. dollar. I mean, just the manner in which the Fed has extended uh, you know, various kinds of lines of credit to uh, other economies, including to some emerging economies, uh, and then in order to stabilize, uh, you know, the dollar markets worldwide, literally, uh, has been quite phenomenal. And uh, and the Chinese, you know, have been talking for years about, you know, pushing out their NMB, internationalizing it, but obviously they have concerns about opening up their capital account in ways that will allow them to do this properly. Uh, but, but where do you think Chinese thinking on this dimension is going to go because at the end of the day, uh, as you're saying, you know, uh, their relationship with the United States in terms of this integration has reached a certain kind of point of tension, which is going to be absolutely difficult to resolve. Yes. Now, I've been arguing for years that this talk about the end of dollar dominance to be replaced by renminbi dominance or even renminbi playing an important role 
was always nonsense. It was based on a misunderstanding of the reserve role of a, of a currency. In fact, I have argued that there is a tremendous cost to having a, a the dominant reserve currency. It's not an exorbitant privilege. It's an exorbitant burden. And the world will continue using the dollar, not because the dollar, not because the U.S. has more aircraft carriers. That's always been nonsense. Um, the, the world will use the dollar because basically the imbalance between the demand for savings and the supply of savings gets resolved by dumping effectively excess savings in the U.S. markets. If you want your currency to be the dominant uh, global reserve and trade currency, it's very simple. You have to be willing to absorb the huge amount of excess savings in the world. And China refuses to. On the contrary, China is an exporter of excess savings. It has way too much domestic savings. Um, so the only thing that will reduce the role of the dollar as the dominant reserve currency, and, and you're absolutely right, the role has increased in recent years. It hasn't, it hasn't uh, reduced. Um, is if the U.S. itself decides to put impediments in the ability of foreigners to dump excess savings in the U.S. markets, which I think in three or four years, the U.S. will start to do. I think there is a, a growing recognition of that. Now, China is in a very uh, strange position in terms of capital controls, because as long as the Chinese banking system is closed, they can, pr they can protect themselves from the likelihood of a financial crisis, as I, as I explained earlier. But China has a very different constraint. If you really want to expand uh, public sector spending, that has to be accommodated by an expansion in the domestic money supply. The problem in China is that it's the so-called impossible trinity. If you have an open capital account, you can either peg your currency or you can control the domestic money supply. You can't do both. Now, China doesn't have a completely open capital account, but it's pretty porous. And right now, they are putting no restrictions on foreign portfolio inflows. They urgently need it. Uh, they don't peg the currency, but they have sort of a dirty peg. So as a result, they can't control the domestic money supply. They have sort of a dirty control. They can control it within some constraints. And if you want the money supply in China to grow rapidly, without causing massive dislocations in the domestic financial system, you need reserves to grow. So when people compare China today with China in 2009, 2010, that's the part they're missing. Everyone is, has been surprised by how reticent China has been in expanding the money supply and lowering interest rates. And I would say we shouldn't be surprised at all. In the three years after the, the 2008 crisis, Chinese reserves grew by 16% a year. And under those conditions, the money supply also had to grow very rapidly. And that accommodated the enormous expansion in debt, which itself accommodated that huge fiscal uh, uh, spending. But today, reserves are flat. They've been flat since the end of 2016. That means China cannot accommodate monetarily a huge increase in fiscal ex uh, expansion and a huge increase in debt. Uh, they need to grow their reserves. And they, uh, they have a current account surplus, so that means money is coming into China. 
but flight capital is greater than the current account surplus. So that means reserves should decline. And the only way to keep reserves from declining is to encourage foreign portfolio inflows, which China has been doing. Uh, so they need money to come into China as rapidly as possible in order to allow them to lower interest rates. You'll notice that while the rest of the world lowered interest rates by one and a half to two percentage points, China uh, lowered in by, by basically two-tenths of one percent. Um, and again, people are surprised by that, but they shouldn't be. Uh, China cannot lower its interest rates as long as it continues to peg the currency and it wants capital inflows into the country. And that's the big constraint they face. And honestly, I don't know how they resolve that. They need fiscal expansion. They need it to be funded by debt. But it's very difficult for them to accommodate a significant increase in debt unless reserves grow. And reserves aren't really growing. So something has to break, and we'll see what that is. Right. And in any case, uh, you know, China is central certainly to a lot of the other emerging market economies as sort of pathway towards recovery from this crisis. So whatever happens in China is going to be of great interest uh, to the rest of the world, but certainly to places like India and the other emerging markets, which are going to be watching the story very carefully. And of course, we will continue to read you very carefully, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much, Srinath. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage.